I'll take your Bibles this morning, open with you back to Matthew chapter 23. Looking at Jesus's pronouncement of judgment, as he's continuing to talk to the Pharisees and the scribes, we've seen the woes and the repetitive statement that he makes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He started by talking to his disciples about the scribes and Pharisees. Then now he's addressing them directly with these woes, with these curses upon them because of their belief and because of their practice, because of the things that they are doing that hides the gospel, that hides the truth of the reality of the word of God. We've come now to the last of the woes in verses 29 through 36 this morning. And in, in these verses, Jesus pronounces judgment upon this generation of religious leaders and these people as it is their generation that is going to reach the ultimate height of rebellion against God. That's going to be accomplished by the persecution of the church, and it's going to begin now with the execution of the Messiah. That it's this generation who's going to cry out for Christ to be crucified, to bring history to the climax at this point of Jesus being put to death. And these who should know better are the ones who are leading that charge. And Christ, of course, is condemning them. Now we look and we know that Christ was sent to come and to be crucified and to be buried and to be raised. We know this was God's program and what God was going to do to accomplish the salvation of his people. But the means through which that is accomplished is through the wickedness of these religious leaders who have been set from the start on finding Jesus and killing him. Whether it was Herod, whether it was the Pharisees later and the crowd that wanted to take up stones against him and try to stone him, the crowd that wanted to throw him off a cliff, those who became determined. And then when Judas went, of course, they eagerly paid him the 30 pieces of silver that he asked for so that he might betray Christ so that they could take him, turn him over to the Romans and so that he could be put to death. They thought that if they could do that, they would be sustaining the status quo. They actually thought in doing this that they would be pleasing to God. And what they don't realize, of course, is that this is going to bring swift judgment upon them. What Jesus pronounces now in chapter 23 and then gets into details as we get ready in the weeks ahead to move into chapter 24. There's going to be specific judgment upon the people of Israel, this generation, because of what they did to Christ. Because of their rejection and rebellion. Because the father sent the son and they rejected the son because they rejected the father. So in verses 29 through 36, we read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus starts by saying, you're just like your fathers. Those who have come before you. The judgment, the woe, is you say that you're taking care of the tombs of the prophets and professing 
that you would not have done what your fathers did in the days when they did those things. Now, this was an amazing thing that they would do. We talked about whitewashing the tombs last week so that people would know it was there so they wouldn't touch it and be defiled and not be able to participate in the Passover. The other thing that they would do from time to time is they would go and they would decorate the tombs as an act of some sort of spiritual work that if you went out to the tombs of the patriarchs and the tombs of those who had gone on before and added to them and decorated to them and put big marble columns and gates, that by adorning the tombs, you were honoring those who had died. Now, of course, the reason that this was done some of the time, we know there are a couple of instances, we read about it even in the book of Acts, where Herod does this, talking about the tomb of David, and he did it because of guilt, because he knew who David was, and Herod knew who he was, and he knew he was not truly a king like David was. David's tomb is mentioned in Acts 2.29, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. They knew where his tomb was because Herod built a humongous marble gate over the front of David's tomb. It was massive. You know, by the way, recently they found it. For years, people said, oh, David didn't exist. This is not the true history of Israel. People have rewritten it. The timelines about what you're hearing about Israel in the news right now, 99% of it's absolute fabrication and lies. The Middle East was not Muslim before it belonged to Abraham and his children. It didn't become Islamic until hundreds of years after. The reality is this was the land that God gave to the people. And now the people who had forsaken the truth, who had rebelled against the prophets, who had put them to death, now their descendants were decorating their tombs. And confessing when they did it, our fathers murdered the prophets. If we'd been there, we wouldn't have done that. Now the confession here and what Jesus points out is that you're confessing that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You know what happened. Now, the judgment here is, you know what happened, and you say you wouldn't do it, but you're doing it. We're going to come to just a few days after Jesus says this, and this crowd is going to cry out for Jesus to be crucified. Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king. God continued to send priests. He continued to send prophets. He's now sent his son, and we wouldn't have killed the prophets but they're about to kill the prophet. That's what they're going to be doing in just a matter of days. So this is a false confession. They do confess the truth that, yes, the prophets were mistreated. Yes, the prophets were murdered. They were persecuted. They were executed. But no, no, we, we would not have done that. This was part of the reason that the, the children of Israel and Judah were sent into Babylon. Upon their return, Nehemiah says, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified again to them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. This is littered throughout the history of the people of God. By the way, this is littered throughout the history of all the peoples of the world to reject listening to the word of God, to have the word of God written on our hearts, to see his glory declared in the creation and to deny the truth about who he is and not only to deny it, but Romans 1 and 2 tell us to actively repress it. Now, we know that's a bad thing when we look at the world because the world knows. I, I promise you, you go, you street preach, you hand out tracts, you witness to your friends. People will confess to you they're an atheist. No, they're not. There's no such thing. They know God exists. That's why they're so passionate in their hatred of him. That's why they reject. If somebody, somebody put it this way. A pastor friend, he said, can you imagine 
telling somebody who doesn't believe in God about God from a book that they don't believe that God wrote about the truth that God says is reality. If they don't believe any of that, why do they get so upset when you tell them what the Bible says? Because they know in their hearts that the Bible is the word of God. They know who God is and they actively work to repress that knowledge. Now, the problem that we read into then is what Jesus talked about in chapter 21 and what we read about throughout the New Testament and Jesus's condemnation of the Israelites. They knew they had the word. They had the prophets. They had the law of God. They knew and still rejected it, still refused to obey. When you realize that there's not a king of Israel after the kingdom split, that was a good king. And there were only a handful of kings in Judah that were godly kings. That for the most part, these people turned their backs on the truth of God and lived in rebellion to him. That's why just like as we read about the church in Sardis, you understand that when God calls a people, it's always the remnant in the midst of that people who know him. It's the remnant. God does big things with little things, with just the few. Yes, many are called. He called the whole nation of Israel, but few are chosen. Few are children of Abraham by faith. So while they confessed the truth and then also denied the truth and said they wouldn't have done that, the condemnation from Jesus is that you're going to fill up this judgment. Verse 30 says, if we had, if we had lived in these days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. This, this verse 32 is actually an imperative. This is a command. Jesus doesn't say you are going to fill up the measure of their guilt. He commands them to do it. You know what Jesus just told this crowd to do? He just commanded them to crucify him. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. The word fill up means to finish or to fulfill what had been started by your fathers previously. What had they started? They had killed the prophets. What were they going to do next? They were going to kill Christ. They were going to find a way to have him put to death. And then what were they going to do to the disciples? Well, the disciples had it easy. Everybody loved them, right? They were going to kill all but one of them, try to kill him and have to exile him to the Isle of Patmos. They were going to give their lives. Because this generation was going to reject the Savior. This was the parable in Matthew 21. Jesus talks about the landowner planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers and then went into a far country. When the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its other servants. Or he's, oh, sorry, skip the verse. That they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. When the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? The crowd answered, said he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Verse 45 is the important verse here now. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. 
But then they sought to lay hands on him. They feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. They were ready to kill him at that point. He's telling them the reality. God has been sending the prophets all through this time. And we know where most of all the prophets are buried. All of their graves had been marked. They had been celebrated. They had been decorated. There are only a few exceptions that we're aware of. Enoch was not buried. Elijah was not buried. And we don't know where Moses is buried. Praise the Lord, because who needs another shrine to a dead man? God didn't let it be known. Well, all the rest of them they knew. And all the rest of them, whether they died naturally or died through persecution, throughout the course of their ministry, they were mistreated. They were rejected. They were abused. They were shunned. They were outcast because the people didn't want to hear what they said. Earlier in that sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death whom God raised up having loosened the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Here's the message to those who crucified Christ. Nice try. God determined he was going to die because God also determined he was going to raise him from the dead. And when he did die at your hands, you murdered him. But what was the reality? Yes, they were guilty. But Jesus laid down his life so that he could take it up again. And he was raised. And it's the point that you can try to stop and you can kill the prophets. But one day the prophets are going to return. One day the prophets are going to be raised. But we don't have to wait on Jesus to be raised. It was on the third day. It was in that in that looking at the time frame, there are those prophets who have been dead for hundreds and even thousands of years who await the resurrection with the rest of us. Jesus was raised on the third day. You tried to kill him. You sought to kill him. You had murderous intention in your heart to do that. And you put him to death. Here's the good news for us and the bad news for you. God raised him up. God raised him up. And so now you're going to finish. You're going to take this shedding of innocent blood all the way to the biggest extreme possible. You are going to demand that a man be executed who is absolutely and completely sinless and innocent. And the only grounds for his death is your hatred of him. Now, Jesus, of course, tells us that if we love him, we love the father. If we don't him, we don't love the father. This is where we need to be careful in some of our discussions with what's going on in the world today. Does God have a plan for Israel, for physical Israel? Yes, the reformers, the Puritans, they believed it all along. We're looking for Romans 10. We're looking for Jesus to come back. And just before he does, we're looking for a revival within the people of Israel. But I want you to understand that anybody, Israel, Arab, Jew, Gentile, anybody that does not worship Jesus doesn't worship the God of the Bible because Jesus is the God of the Bible. And that's the problem. The problem, the condemnation here that Jesus is bringing is you've had the truth about who the true God is and you refuse to worship him because if you worshiped him, you would believe me. But because you don't believe me, you've rejected the word of the Father. At that, part, you're, at that point, you're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible. You have developed a whole false religion here that makes your converts double the disciples of hell that you are. Judaism at this point in time had become a false religion. 
Because when the Messiah they had waited for came, and again, I've said this before, we know it's clear from our study in Matthew. When the Messiah came, it's not that they didn't know who he was, it's that they refused to bow to him. They knew who he was and that's why they killed him. They thought that if they killed him, they didn't have to have him as their Messiah because he was messing everything up. He was taking away their prestige and their self-righteousness and their power and their influence. And he wasn't giving them what they wanted. He wasn't freeing them from the boot of Rome. He wasn't giving them a free, nice theocracy on earth where they could do whatever they wanted and live in comfort and in ease. Instead, Jesus came and he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Families are going to turn on one another. You are going to have to live under the oppression of evil governments and live to the glory of God while you do that. You know, we think that we're under persecution in America. We don't have a clue yet, but it's coming. It's growing. Jesus warned them. He's cursing them here. He's judging them. And he's told them, he's set the mark and he's done it by a command. He is sending them on a mission. You are going to bring about my death. And it's going to completely fill up, shedding the blood of the innocent. In verse 33, he, he, he doesn't hold back. He says, serpents, brood of vipers. How could you escape the condemnation of hell? We've talked about this previously. I titled this message, Brood of Vipers, part two, because earlier in Matthew, Jesus addressed them as brood of vipers, and so did John the Baptist. Brood of vipers, what's brood? It's the offspring. He says, you bunch of baby snakes. You bunch of baby serpents. Now, I had the coolest thing happen yesterday. I was out in the backyard. I don't know if y'all saw, but it got really dark right in the middle of the day. <laughs> Pretty cool to watch the sun disappear behind the moon and then come back. It was out with the dogs later in the yard and I saw something in the grass and went to look and see what it was. And guess what it was? It was a baby snake. Now, it was a little tiny snake. It was maybe only about that long. But I promise you, I looked at it very closely before I reached to pick it up. And it was just a little grass snake. Picked up the little grass snake and he didn't want to be held. So he kept slithering off, running away. Those things are slippery and they're fast. When I can even imagine being a baby snake. Not like finding a grass snake. Have you ever come across a baby copperhead? Here, here's the danger in Texas. If you come across a baby copperhead, by the way, you'll know that you're around the copperhead because the little baby copperhead has got a yellow tail, a yellow tip on his tail. It's got the head of a venomous snake. And when they bite you, they have no control. Adult snakes can actually control the amount of venom that's injected. Rattlesnakes and copperheads both. They can bite you and not inject you. I don't recommend testing it. But the babies have no such control. So when they bite you, you're getting all the venom that they've got at that point in time. They're even more dangerous than an adult snake because they won't plan to strike. They will strike at anything that startles them. And so you brush up against them on the trail and they get a hold of you. You're getting a dose of venom that is deadly. Now, we know, of course, this is not even talking about venomous snakes. We know this is talking about the serpent, about the devil who's like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. And Jesus says, you're a bunch of baby devils. That's what it is to be brood of vipers. He calls them out and out servant, uh, serpents. You are devils. You are baby Satans. Not very complimentary, is it? I mean, can you imagine if you addressed false teachers like that today? Well, that's the problem. We should be, and we aren't, because people don't want to be offensive. Jesus identified their false doctrine. He identified their self-righteousness. He identified what was wrong with their system of religion. And then he told them exactly where it was coming from. It was coming from the fact that they were sons of their father, the devil. We have the serpent in Genesis chapter three. 
more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? That's where the devil always starts. Did God really say? Followed by, no, he didn't. You misunderstood him. Let me tell you what he really meant. You see, God didn't want you to know what he knows. God's hiding something from you. God doesn't want what's best. Think about the history of Israel with, with serpents. You remember Numbers 21. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. What was the solution? God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it high up on a pole. And whoever would look on the serpent on the pole would be spared from dying the death if they'd been bitten by these serpents. Later, they named that serpent on a pole, Nehushtan, and raised it up. And it had to be destroyed later because it became an idol. Because God's means of deliverance then became worshipped in a wrong way. And it had to be destroyed. Now we know that they're spreading a false gospel, rejecting the Messiah, Rejecting obedience to the law of God, the whole, the whole debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the whole thing was a debate, conservatives, literals, fundamentalists, and, and hyper-Calvinists. It's everybody on every side trying to claim that their way is right and whatever they believe, nobody else believes, and they're right. And oh, by the way, the Bible says this. No, the Bible says this. Well, your Bible may say that, but my Bible didn't say that. My Bible says this. That's your interpretation. That's your truth. That's not my interpretation or my truth. And see, the problem that they ran into is the same problem that runs through the church even today. Instead of submitting themselves to the scriptures, they set themselves over the scriptures. And they determined to decide what the scripture said. From that came all of this false Romanism where the Catholic Church says that they're the only ones who can tell you what the Bible says. And you have to accept their interpretation because if you believe any other way, you're wrong. Well, that is putting the church over the word. The church, every one of us, we have to be under the word. It's got to be the word over us. We mean, meaning we let the word say what it says. And if we don't understand it, we use the analogy of faith. We compare scripture to scripture. We diligently study the word. We listen to teachers who we know are teaching the word. We see the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of their ministries. By the way, here is a good way to tell whether a teacher is a false teacher or not. What is the fruit being born in the people who follow them? Because a lot of people will say things that sound really good. But then you look at the churches and at the people and at the fruit, either they're not hearing what the pastor's saying and teaching, not believing in and doing it, or there's some sense of error in what he is saying and what he is preaching. Beyond it all, we have to take it to the word of God and trust that the spirit of God is the one, the teacher, the spirit of truth, who's going to lead us into all truth. This, this really should boggle our minds. Do you realize that because of the work of Christ on your behalf before God as an atoning sacrifice and then him sealing you with his spirit, you can pick up your Bible, read it and understand it. <gasps> no, it's too complicated. It's too hard. It's only hard if you're dead. Do you have to work at understanding the word? Yes. Do you need help understanding the word? That's the point. That's why the Spirit's been given. But we can diligently search the Scriptures, read them, and understand them. Now, does that mean we're all going to be absolutely completely right? Well, if you listen to everything I preach, you'll be absolutely completely right. No, no. You know, I disagree with every other preacher on the planet. I did hear a preacher one time say, well, I disagree with everybody somewhere. There's something I disagree with, something about them. And I thought, that's not my problem. My problem is I disagree with myself too much. If you're waiting for absolute, complete uniformity in belief... 
We're not getting there till we're glorified. We'll get there. It's when we see Jesus. Until then, what do we do? We press on. We're conformed. We're transformed. We were, we're renewing the spirit of our mind. We're growing in grace. If you meet a preacher who has never changed the point that he's preached in his whole ministry, something's wrong. Because we grow in our understanding of Christ through his word. The Pharisees changed it. They twisted it. They followed after the devil. They weren't telling the truth to the people. They had crafted a system of religion that benefited and enriched them. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says in verse 3 and 4, But I fear, lest somehow, as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. This is the problem with Corinth. It was the same problem with Galatians. He says, I can't believe you're so quick to abandon the truth of the gospel. You're putting up with another Jesus. I'm going to have to write something. Pray that I have the time and the diligence to write something. I've got to write a response to this painting of the false Jesus hanging here in Marble Falls. I'm getting asked too many questions by too many people. How do we answer that? There are other Jesuses that are going to be presented to the world. And I promise you, if you want to see another Jesus, go look at that painting. A little girl had never been to church, never read the Bible, never knew anything, had a vision and painted this picture. And now thousands of people come from all around the world and say that they're moved by this picture because it's the face of Jesus. Jesus said, you're blessed because you haven't seen me, but you've believed. We're not looking for the eyes of sight. We're looking to see Jesus when he calls us to be with him. And Jesus himself warns us there are going to be lots of other Jesuses out there. Substitutes, fake Christs. Don't go after them. For Paul to say this, here's what I'm afraid, Paul says. The serpent deceived Eve. Now understand, Eve was perfect in a perfect garden, having never sinned with no corruption. And yet the devil was able to tempt her and raise in her mind, in her perfect mind, doubt about God. If the serpent can do that to Eve in the garden, can you imagine what he could do now? With all that we're bombarded with in the world, that's not true about God. That's not true about who Jesus is. He says, I don't want your minds to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Knowing Christ is not complicated. Here's where you need to start, by the way, when you tell people, you ask people, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? If they answer yes, ask them a few questions and make sure they know Jesus. The Jesus, who is Jesus, not another Jesus. If you get the answer, no, I don't know who Jesus is, you, you, you might be so bold as to tell them, well, you know, and unless God shows himself to you, you can't know him. You can't. This is not something we can attain. We need to preach a salvation that is simply all about Christ and Christ crucified, not about the ability of the sinner to do anything about it. We need, instead of trying to answer every question, we need to preach Jesus. People will sidetrack us in our evangelism by trying to throw up roadblocks and obstacles and questions and riddles. Don't fall for it. Preach Christ. Preach Jesus. And here's what happens. Those who are his, eventually that voice will get through. They will hear and they will come. Those who are not, they will fight. They'll be mad at you for not answering their questions, for not giving them proof. They'll be mad at you for not convincing them. You can't convince them. It's not our job to convince them. We preach Christ, the simplicity that is in Jesus, and he 
does the convincing. He does the converting. To call them sons of the devil. We know the encounter in John chapter 8. Talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. What were Abraham's works? He believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They, they said, God's our father. First they said, Abraham's our father. Now they say, God's our father. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. What do you not, do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You're of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks for his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you who do not hear, because you are not of God. This is the final pronouncement now in Matthew 23 and 24. You are doomed to be judged. And verse 33 spells it out. Serpents, brood of vipers. It, it, the question is, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? That's not a question that there's an answer to. It's a question that says... There's no way you're going to escape the condemnation of hell. If you've rejected me, there is no alternative. There is no other way. You cannot escape. You are doomed to judgment as long as you reject me. We know that this is true of the devil himself. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, the devil's not in charge in hell. The devil's not tormenting tortured souls in hell. Hell was created for the devil. And as he's cast into, into, the, into the, to the lake of fire, can you imagine? Just put your sanctified imagination cap on with you. And imagine the cheer of victory from all of the elect from all time when the devil is cast into the lake of fire. What a roar that will be. Verse 14 goes on. Death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is what is coming for those who follow the lies of Satan, who have been deceived, who are under his power, and who continue to reject Christ. He goes on and says in verse 34, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. He's talking about righteous bloodshed. He's going to send those to them to preach. You understand, they thought if they could get rid of Jesus, that then they could make his disciples scatter. And they thought that it would die quickly. Now, what were they warned about by, even by Gamaliel? They were warned, you better be careful how you deal with this because if this is from God, you can't stop it. If it's not from God, it's going to fall apart on its own. If it is from God, you can't stop it. What happened after the resurrection? After the resurrection, Peter, who had gone to try to cut Malchus's head off in the garden, 
Suddenly it comes and preaches on the day of Pentecost. And as the disciples preach, 3,000 people are converted. The New Testament church is born. They turn the world upside down. They gain a reputation for bringing a bunch of rabble risers who change everything. People don't even want them to come to their town. When they come, things change. And so what happened? They were stoned and beaten and persecuted and executed. And it didn't stop with the disciples. There are those after that came. We find Stephen, the first martyr, stoned. And he sees Jesus seated at the right hand while he's dying and preaching. And asking that those who are stoning him would be forgiven. Just as Christ preached while he was being crucified. Pray, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Who was there at the stoning of Stephen? Who was the man in charge of the stoning of Stephen? The man holding the cloaks. His name was Saul of Tarsus. Do you realize God answered Stephen's prayer on the road to Damascus? And then sent Paul, who had been scourging and excommunicating and killing the Jews. Now he sent them. To, and you, you understand, I would have loved a candid camera, candid camera episode to have happened when Paul walked into the New Testament church the first time. Because they knew why he was there. He's there to throw us in prison and to kill us. And yet he walks in and he's preaching the same gospel because he's met the same Jesus because he's been completely, radically transformed. And now Paul and the apostles, they go, they preach. Other men preach. Philip, the evangelist, preaches to the eunuch. And now we find that through him, through history now, we've got some of the oldest churches that exist in the world. Because somebody said, can you explain to me what the book of Isaiah says? And where did Philip take him? To Jesus. From Isaiah to the gospel. Here's the truth. And immediately, there's water. Baptize me. That's awesome when a eunuch gets out of a chariot and says, let's get in this baptistry. Dunk me now. What forbids me from being baptized? I need to be obedient to my Savior. Men who have gone and died on the mission field. Those who have given their lives. Think of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Think of others that we know of through history that worked until it was their death. You, you read the diary and you read from Jonathan Edwards about his son-in-law, David Brainerd. And you realize all that Brainerd did in just a few years of ministry to reach the Native Americans with the gospel. And he died at the age of 29. He did more to impact the people around him with the gospel than people who live 80 or 90 years ever will. He, it cost him his life. There were those who go and they will preach and they will teach and they will seal what they preach with their blood. And the church isn't stopped. This, this is the promise from Christ. He's going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We've talked about this before. The gates of Hades, that's not the devil. The gates of Hades is death. It's the graveyard. The gospel is going to be preached and death can't stop it. Why? Because when we believe and we trust and we die, we've gone to be with Christ. We've just affirmed with our life what we believe. They could kill every one of us in here. Does that stop the gospel? Not at all. Not a blip. The gospel is going to continue to go on. The church is going to continue to be built. Now, does that mean we should invite persecution? There are a couple of morons out there who think it's a godly thing to suffer, and so they provoke it. That is not wise. Don't go get provoked. Don't, don't, don't go provoke persecution. You preach the truth and you love people enough to tell them the truth and you will be persecuted. Don't revel in it. Don't ask for it, but expect it. It's going to come. When we do this, we know Jesus says he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and pastor teachers 
for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Here's the good news. Ultimately, we are all equipped by the teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are all equipped to be missionaries, to go do the work of service and to go until we can't go anymore. That means we are all put on a mission. And the mission is to leave here today and to take the gospel to whoever needs it, no matter what it costs, even if they kill us for it. I mean, that sounds kind of radical. That's not a very comfortable Western Christianity, is it? Sound like a nut. Well, like the evangelist said, I might be nuts, but I'm screwed on a right bolt. Have it in the right perspective. Know the truth and know that if you go and you're faithful to death, you, you know, you know, you're pictured in the New Testament, don't you? You're pictured in the book of Revelation. If you serve Christ to the point that it cost you your life, you're under the throne. Not around the throne, under the throne. He's going to send. The world is going to persecute. They're going to kill. First Thessalonians 2, Paul says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. And it persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Go and be faithful. Preach the truth no matter the cost. And for Jesus to say here that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. When we talk about innocent blood, by the way, this is what we would have understood when, when Judas went and when he betrayed Christ, he came back and threw the money back in the temple and he said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? We don't care. He gives illustrations here. And in fact, these are the end caps of history from the Old Testament for the innocent who have died. Understanding we're all born sinners, not saying that that, but saying that there are innocent, those who are justified, those who are killed, martyred because of their faith. That's considered innocent blood. Where did it start? He tells us it started with Abel. What happened? Genesis 4, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know him. I'm a brother's keeper. By the way, the answer to that question is yes. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God knew what happened. Abel's blood was crying out. Hebrews 11, 4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and through it, he being dead still speaks. Abel was the first martyr. He died for his obedience to God. He offered a sacrifice like God commanded. Cain didn't. Cain gave God what Cain wanted to give God, not what God wanted Cain to give him. And in that jealousy and in that hatred, he killed his brother. He also mentions here, Jesus mentioned Zechariah. Zechariah's account is given to us in 2 Chronicles. Now, here's what you need to understand. By giving Abel and Zechariah these two examples, these are the first and the last of the prophets, those who were killed, martyred for their faith in the Old Testament. Now, who came after Zechariah? It would have been John the Baptist. You say, wait a minute, you're in 2 Chronicles. Yes, look at a Hebrew Bible. You know the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament in a Hebrew Bible? Second Chronicles. So the last death, the first death in the Hebrew scriptures is Abel. The last of a prophet is a martyr is Zechariah. 
The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. Jesus takes Zechariah's own words and says, this is what's going to happen. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the first Abel to the last in the Old Testament, Zechariah, who died between the temple and the altar. Jesus says in verse 36, this is as terrifying as what he says in, in chapter 7. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What he's saying is there's going to come a judgment on Israel. Now that they're going to reach that climax of offense against God, putting his own son to death, having killed the prophets, going to persecute the New Testament church, as the New Testament church was born, it was born in the diaspora as people and the Jews were scattered and the church went with them. But judgment was coming. We're going to get into that in, verse, in chapter 24. Serious, world-ending judgment was coming to Jerusalem because of their treatment of the prophets of God. We see the results in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. What are we waiting for? <coughs> we're waiting for the last elect to be saved, and we're waiting for the last martyr to die. We're waiting for the return of Christ. Think about when they crucified him. For Judas to, con to confess, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. What did the crowd say? That was Matthew 27, verse 4. By the time we get to verse 25, Pilate has set Barabbas and Jesus before the people. What do you want me to do with Barabbas? A zealot, an assassin, a terrorist with a death penalty. A lot of people had suffered because of him. And what did they say? Release him. Let him go. Well, what about Jesus? He's, he's innocent. What do I do with Jesus? And what did they cry? First, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, he, as he answers, and the people do that, the crowd chants, his blood be on us and our children. <laughs> Fulfilling what Jesus had commanded just a few chapters before. They called divine wrath down upon themselves. They declared themselves guilty in the death of the Messiah, of the Son of God. This is the warning that we do have in Scripture. Jesus says this generation, these people alive right here who he's talking to, they're going to suffer that judgment because of what they've done to Christ. Back in chapter 12, he said it this way, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. These dreadful words from Christ, you're going to be judged unlike any other people in the history of the world in this generation. We'll see that unfold in chapter 24. After saying that, we'll focus next week on verses 37 through 39. To go from this condemnation, we think Jesus is righteously angry at the Pharisees as he's calling them out and as he's cursing them with these woes. But then he turns and he looks at the city. And what does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In this pronouncement of judgment, we see the false religion, the false righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus tore their religious structure down and judgment was coming. They were on the brink of destruction and hell. The question I asked when we started is for us to read this and not say, boy, those Pharisees were something terrible. It's to hear what Jesus says to the Pharisees and to pray, God, root out any of the Pharisee that's found in me. Anything they taught, anything they believed, anything they practiced, if it sprouts up in my life, uproot it, reveal it, expose it, tear it out. Because the seeds and the fruit that come from this kind of thinking lead only to judgment and destruction. Here's the way that looks, by the way. Food for thought. As soon as you have a thought and think, I'm a pretty good Christian. <laughs> Wrong answer. We serve a glorious and good Savior. And outside of Him, there is nothing good in us. It's what he's done that, ma that matters. Let's pray together. Father, how we do thank you for your word, for Christ's words to the Pharisees. In the condemnation, in the judgment, fathers, we'll see in the next chapter, this is a terrible pronouncement. And yet they continue to reject the truth. They put Christ to death. They killed the apostles, all in order to preserve their way of life and their way of worship. Father, I pray that we instead would be willing to die to ourselves, to put our self-righteousness to death, to crucify it, to persecute our flesh by denying it, so that we might live by the power of your spirit according to your word. We do pray this morning, if there's any of this Pharisaism in us, expose it and root it out. Drive us to our knees in humility. We worship you and we thank you for the work of grace that you've done. We profess that we are in no way deserving or worthy of it. So we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for opening our eyes to the truth and giving us the opportunity to walk with you and to fellowship with you, to have a relationship with you. We give you the credit for all of it. Father, in these days ahead, we do continue to pray for Israel. We pray for your church, especially all around the world. Persecution is on the rise. Terroristic and murderous actions are increasing. There are wars and rumors of wars. 
As we look at it, though, we don't fear. We simply proclaim, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer this morning in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So we prepare now to come to the table where Christ secured our salvation by his sacrifice. Thank him. Thank him for his grace.